In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Rochelle Dickerson, whose career odyssey includes turns as a newspaper editor, public school teacher, public relations consultant, and attorney. Here's a snippet from their conversation. And so I always tell people, that's where your power lies, just in your voice. And so for me, going from journalism to, um, you know, being an attorney, those things were, that made perfect sense because it's like, I've been doing this work my whole life, right? But doing it in a different way. So it was just sort of like switching gears. So, you know, ever since, like I said, since I was a kid, I always hated to see people mistreated or people, you know, done wrong. And so you know, working in the legal field gives me an opportunity to advocate for people in a different way, people who can't speak for themselves or who can't get noticed or whose issue, you know, hasn't been brought out to the forefront. So that it was a it was a natural progression. And it just sort of came to me one day and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to go to law school. It was just like it was like someone flipped the switch. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Rochelle Dickerson began her career in print journalism, working as a copy editor at major American newspapers such as Newsday, The Los Angeles Times, The Houston Chronicle, and the Star Ledger. In between, she taught language arts and journalism in the New York City public school system. After leaving the newspaper industry, she decided to become a lawyer and earned her Juris Doctor from the Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University in Houston. Currently, she is communications manager for Missouri City, a small city in Texas that's a short drive from Houston. Rochelle assists in managing the city's day-to-day integrated communications, marketing, and branding operations. Rochelle is a native Texan, but she was raised in Brooklyn, and I'm delighted to have her as a guest on the podcast. I began our conversation by asking her about one of my favorite topics, newsroom diversity. Rochelle, um, what can we do collectively and individually to promote, encourage, and support diversity in the news media? Um, I think that's probably the $64,000 question and a question that um, people in newsrooms have been grappling with, right, since they first started wanting to get uh, diverse voices in the newsroom. So I would say that was probably during the late 1960s, you know, as things were unfolding around the country, I found that a lot of journalists who were of color got their break during those times when, you know, there was like riots and Watts or, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. They needed um, journalists of color to actually go into those communities and talk to people who, and people would you know, give them the honest assessment of what was going on, whereas they may not have been as willing to talk to white, you know, white reporters, um, white male reporters, which is pretty much what what it was back in the day, back in the old days, as I said. Um, So I think that as far as promoting um, and encouraging, I think a lot of the news organizations need to recruit at maybe HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities or with other uh, schools and universities that have, di- you know, diverse journalism programs, in other words, have students of color in those programs. I think that's um, a definite way to do it, because I, I think about it's always amazing to me that kids still want to be journalists. Right. Like look around and think newspapers have died off and um, by and large. And a lot of print media has suffered um, from you know, the internet and just everything going digital. And so you think, oh, there are really kids that want to be, still want to be journalists, but there are. And I think, you know, it's up to the people that run these organizations to 
you know, interface with um, some also groups like the National Association of Black Journalists or Unity or Asian Journalists or, you know, with those types of groups that can plug them into kids who really want to be in the business. So that's to get them into it. And then once you get in, in the news media, I think that they really have to make it more than just lip service. A lot of times I found that diversity is like a buzzword for a couple of years, not just in the industry, but also throughout, uh, you know, the country. And it needs to be more than just a fad. You know, it just, it, to me, it seems to just ebb and flow. And, um, and it's one of those things where there doesn't seem to be a long-term commitment to it. And so I think that's the, that's the way to sort of, um, you know, to get around that, that problem, so to speak. Uh, I'm really glad that you spoke about the long-term, uh, you know, commitment because, uh, you know, I, clearly see a connection between diversity in the news media and social justice. Uh, but I'm not sure that's apparent, you know, globally. Uh, so right. from, from your perspective, you know, what, what is the connection between diversity in news media and social justice? Well, I think in order to cover some of these stories, like the George Floyd situation is just one, you know, there's been all these um, police killings over the past. God, what are we, uh, Trayvon Martin was like, what, 20, 14 or 2013, maybe, you know, somewhere in there. And so there's been all of these um, killings and things of where you're going to have to cover what's happening right within these diverse communities. And so if you don't really um, have an understanding or have people in your newsroom that can sort of put it in perspective for you, you'll be covering the social justice piece from a lens that's really obscured. You know, like I just think about the way that civil rights was covered back in the 50s and the 60s before a lot of the newsrooms got it seems like before they understood like what it meant and how if they wanted to tackle the issue you know for a lot of people they didn't want to tackle it it was just seen as a southern problem not as a northern problem right for a lot of the big newspapers in northern uh north america like new york times or chicago tribune or whatever it was sort of seen as a southern issue but now you see this these things have been happening all over the country. And so if you don't have anybody in the newsroom that can sort of like pull your coattail to what some of the issues that are really happening in these, um, you know, in these communities, then you're not going to be able to cover social justice. You know, you, a lot of times in this country, we make it a crime to be poor, you know, a crime to be black or Hispanic or, you know, Asian or whatever. It's like people don't have control of the circumstances they're born into, you know, but a lot of times in our country, unfortunately, we focus on these things like, oh, it's this person's fault that they're poor or it's just your fault that you're black or, you you know, that's not something you can be, that can be helped. So it, it helps you to look at it from a different perspective. So you stop thinking, oh, those people over there, like that's their problem. And they did this to themselves, you know? So if you can, if you have other people, other voices in the newsroom or in the industry that will make you look at it different. So, um, Rochelle, can you talk to us about your experiences as a journalist and tell us how your perspective gave you insight into the stories you covered? Um, well, I'll, you know, I'll take you to a specific story. Um, I can say growing up in Brooklyn, you know, I'm a kid who grew up public school system, in New York city. I'm a product of that. I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, I grew up in crown Heights, which was a, um, it's a, it's a community that's mixed a lot of black, um, you know, who are um, African-American of Caribbean background. You have Haitians, Jamaicans, you've got people from Barbados, um, Guyana, like a lot of West Indian people in that community. But you also have the Hasidic Lubavitchers, so that Jewish sect, um, Orthodox Jews to see them that live in that community as well. So just, you know, we had to sort of coexist with them, right? And so there were certain things that I would see 
um, in the neighborhood or just growing up, they gave me perspective. So when, for instance, when that whole case happened um, with the Central Park Five, because of the way I grew up in New York City, I, I knew like right off the rip that those kids did not do what they were saying that they did, that they didn't rape the woman. It just didn't, it just didn't ring true to me. Like when I was hearing the stories about what they said, like they said, Oh, you know, we were in the park, we were wilding. I mean, at the time I was probably about 18, 19 years old myself. So when they were saying wilding, it's like, okay, I'm a kid. I'm in the streets. I've never heard that term. So it just sounds, sounded to me like something that was contrived or made up. Um, Similarly with the, the case that happened in Brooklyn when they had the, um, motorcade for the uh with the Hasidim in it where they ran up on the sidewalk the driver ran up on the sidewalk and killed the kid and that started like those riots in crown heights again living in that community i knew some of the underlying issues with the tensions between the black community and the um, Hasidic jewish community in crown heights so the way it was framed in the media wasn't exactly the way things were were happening, you know? And so at those times, both of those stories happened. I wasn't in the, I wasn't a professional journalist yet. I was still in college, just graduating. I don't think I even started working. Um, I worked at Newsday. I started working there in 1992. So all these things sort of predated, um, you know, my ascent into the profession, but knowing you know, what I knew in my background, when I came to the newsroom, I was able to say, to just bring a different perspective and say, hey, you know, this is actually what people in that community were dealing with at that particular time. Or this is actually what I know about New York City during the time of the Central Park jogger. You know, by that by the time I became a professional journalist, those cases had already been you know, decided and, and dealt with. And so they weren't really being written about anymore. But just the, w- knowing what I knew, about growing up in New York City and about how certain things work in the Black community, I was able to bring that, um, you know, to different stories and stuff that we covered. I covered in newsrooms, whether that was at Newsday or at the LA Times when I worked there or even in Houston when I worked there. It was, to me, it's always important to have someone else in the newsroom who has different backgrounds so that you guys can talk about things and they can give you a different perspective on on um on the way things happen so i just sometimes it's underlying things that that the media doesn't know that that the public doesn't know you know and we're expecting the media to bring that information to us but if the reporters don't know it then they won't be able to report about certain nuances of things that are happening that's why it's important for them to really be engaged with those communities and be on the ground and be able to talk to people who can give them um you know background information that's going to be essential to that story being reported correctly can you talk to us about one or two uh, specific stories where your insight really made the difference or, or where you felt on a, you know, on a personal and a professional level that, gosh, you know, I'm really glad that I covered this story because I got it. Well, I can tell you one time when um, it became a big issue in terms of perspective, I was talking, uh, we had a, an editor who was really, um, he was very conservative. And so he was really, this is the time when Clinton was being going through the impeachment uh, proceedings, President Clinton. And so he was really looking at it from not so much a historical perspective. I mean, he did say, well, this is history in the making, but he was, because he was so strongly conservative, he was looking at it like, you know, uh, this is a terrible, he was also taking some glee in it, right? So he was like, this is a terrible thing, but he was also sort of happy about the fact that it was happening. And I was saying to him, you know, um, you know, I'm not a lifelong Democrat necessarily, you know, I, but I said to him, I said, there are a lot of people 
within the black community. And I don't know how much polling he did of anybody else, but who thought that that whole thing was really something that was sort of like a trap or contrived or set up to, to catch president Clinton. And although I was not of the mind that it was a trap, I felt like he did perjure himself, right? That's, we know that he lied under oath about, about what happened, but there were a lot of people in the black community who felt like that was not, it didn't rise to the level of, of impeaching him, you know? And when I was telling this to him, I don't think it really made a difference in terms of our coverage per se, because he was so hellbent on, you know, sort of skewing it one way. But I think that um, I definitely made my voice heard in terms of what was considered to be something that should a president should be removed from office for versus something that was um, that didn't rise to that level, you know, and I think he just had this belief that it was a, a blanket, you know, black and white situation that the president should be impeached for that when there were you know, other people who felt like, no, that's not, that's not the way it goes. And so we were talking about this during a news meeting and there were other people who, you know, also felt the same way. And I think he, it was just like a recognition for him that his way of thinking wasn't the only way of thinking that there was. Um, I'm not sure to what degree I was able to, you know, sway him to, to change the coverage. You know what I mean? Because he'd already picked who he was going to have to cover the story and, and, and stuff like that. So you can only, you're only one person you can do only what you can do. You know, you can tell them, but you'll see sometimes you might, you might say, Hey, we shouldn't do this. And they'll go ahead and do it anyway. And then it may not have good consequences. And then people are Monday morning quarterbacking, like, well, maybe we should listen to a little black girl. <laughs> you know, it just depends. Why is it important for the United States to have news organizations that reflect uh, the racial and the ethnic uh, diversity of our population? Well, I, I think otherwise it's bogus coverage. You know what I mean? Um, if you look back on when, let's say, the early 1900s before, or before there were a lot of Black people in the newsroom, just the way things were skewed, um, something as simple as someone being, um, you know, considered innocent until proven guilty for a lot of news stories that used to run during that time frame, let's say from 1900 into, into like the 1970s. And even now you see it happen, you know, just the way certain stories are framed when the, um, when the perpetrator is a person of a different color, as opposed to being a white person or a person who's, who's Muslim, you know, who may not be a Christian or whatever. Those stories are always written in a way where, that person was presumed to be guilty, even if they hadn't gone to trial yet, they hadn't been, you know, arraigned yet or whatever. And so how can you say as America that you're a fair place and you're for freedom and liberty and justice, those types of things, if you are writing these stories in a way that makes this person, you know, convicts them, makes them seem guilty before you, they've even been arraigned or they've even gone to trial. And so I think that as you start to get more people of color in the newsroom, they start to say, hey, wait a minute, we can't frame these stories in that way. I think for some people, if it's not them or their particular racial or ethnic group, they don't really have that empathy or they can't um, you know, connect with that person. So if you see a black person and you don't know any black people or you don't really work with any black people, you're seeing it like, oh, that's that group of people over there. And so it's okay for you to um, you know, make the, let's sort of alienate them and make them out to be a bad person. But as you start to get more people in the newsroom, people of color, 
hopefully you get people who are interacting with one another, not just on a, on a work level, but maybe on the social level as well. So you have to have that diversity so that it's that there, the groups of people are represented, right? So if America, if, if America is like, was it 13% black at this particular point, then, and some of the newsrooms you should have, you should have comparable numbers in terms of black people that are represented. But what's happening now, it's almost like a retrenchment what I see in some of the newsrooms that that diversity that was there in the, let's say the nineties or even the early two thousands isn't really there anymore. Um, a lot of people have left the business for, you know, personal reasons, some of which is not feeling like they have room for advancement or they're being given promotions and things like they want, but also just because sometimes you just get tired of being the only one there sort of fighting that fight. There aren't enough um, like voices, like-minded voices there to sort of, the safety of numbers, right? The strength in numbers. If you don't have people behind you that are sort of saying the same thing, it gets it becomes difficult. So I think in order for us to be taken seriously as as um, as an industry, and also for America to be taken seriously, right? We need to have that diversity in those newsrooms because otherwise, you have people from other countries, you know, saying, "Well, look at your country. You guys have this issue, and you have that issue, and you know, we can't be an authority and speak on democracy and freedom if we're not doing that within our own country." Which we made some real, really strong efforts at the end of the 70s. The 80s were particularly, I thought we did a good job in the 80s and the 90s of, uh, you know, of just making the newsrooms more welcoming to everyone and to hearing more voices. Um, but I, I definitely noticed um, that we've slackened our efforts. I'm saying we as an industry, um, you know, that we kind of like said, okay, well, we did that and now we can turn to something else. And it's just not. Yeah, and so there's this general feeling, I think, in the rest of the world, it's like, well, you know, you made the progress, so now you can chill. And it's just not the way, you know, the, what can we do, I guess, and then I'll get to that last question. There's a, from your perspective, from your in your mind, uh, what can we do to keep the progress going, you know, and not to, you know, not to rest on our laurels, such as they are, and to understand that this evolution is going to take 50 years, not 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing in the newsrooms is the same things, same things that we're seeing in society at large. Um, I, I think it definitely is a regression. Um, we've progressed on civil rights or civil freedoms in this country, um, as well as what's happening in newsrooms. So if you look at the different, for instance, these new voter uh, voter laws, laws that are being proposed in a lot of states around the country, like 40 plus states are putting in these new laws on voter registration, ID, all these types of things that seem to be rolling back, um, making it diff more difficult to vote than before, right? So you think, well, gee, we went through this. We got rid of long ago poll taxes and literacy questions and different things that people had to do in order to vote. Why, you know, why is this happening now? So I just think that when it's um, a fight for justice, it just seems like this ongoing fight. Um, and so you just have to keep your foot on the gas pedal unfortunately um you say who it seems to be like the news industry sort of self-regulates right there is no one that really um holds them accountable right it's it's really weird in that respect i mean you have the different um journalism groups like nabj or you know the asian american or the hispanic american journalists who can say to the industry hey, this, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, right? Or you may have these groups that, um, like Media Matters or different groups that are supposedly nonpartisan but are looking at 
media with or the industry with an objective eye, right? To say that these are things that you're doing or not doing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's up to them to decide how far they want to go with diversity, right? So you have some groups that, or some industry, um, some, I guess, news outlets that are not as diverse and really don't care about being diverse. Then you have others that say they want to be diverse, but they may not necessarily do it. So as far as um, what we can do, I mean, that part is a stumper for me because like I said, we are, the industry is sort of regulating itself. So other than the outside voices speaking to them and saying, hey, this is what you should be doing. It's up to them, right, to implement those things. I don't know that there's necessarily any, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consequences, right, for people not, for them not implementing the diversity the way it should be implemented. Of course, the consequences are for all of us as a, you know, as a culture um, and as a, you know, a nation. Uh, the, I think the consequences are that we <laughs> we have news media that are not uh, that are not particularly sensitive or, or, or aware. Uh, they don't have a historical perspective. Uh, they lack empathy. And, um, you know, they look hipper than they used to be. I'll give them that. Uh, I'm sorry. Right. Now I just sound like a cranky old man complaining. Uh-huh. You know um, well, I'll say this. Don't get me wrong. I think that there are a lot of um, news stories that are written nowadays, a lot of projects that are undertaken nowadays that never would have been taken, have been undertaken, you know, back in the 80s or 90s or even early 2000s, like the 1619 project that the New York Times did, you know, and, and just the way that we write about um write about diversity in this country. I mean, for so long, you know, there were just things that weren't talk, talked about. Now it's pretty much a given in a lot of the news stories that, yes, you know, um, systemic uh, discrimination or systemic race, racism does, does exist, you know, whereas that's been fought for so long to even say that, like, people would look at you like, what are you talking about? But I think now in a lot of news stories, at least that I've, that I've been reading, is sort of... Um, acknowledge that yes that is a thing right um not ne- not that that's necessarily the reason for every bad thing that happens in this country but yes that is something that um people of color ha- have had to contend with right but i would think maybe 20 years ago you wouldn't even get that that acknowledgement so i think it has gotten better from from that perspective right but i had to ask myself how many black people again are in the new york times newsroom probably less than was in there you know in 2000, um, here we are 21 years later, there are probably less black people working in there because that seems to be the trend in a lot of different, um, a lot of different news organizations, the ones that still exist. Yeah. So Rochelle, tell us about your career path and uh, talk to us a little bit about your journey from journalist to attorney. Um, what's funny, I, what I'm doing now is um, a lot of advocacy work. But as I look at my career trajectory, I realize that that's something that I've always been doing. I think even when I came to, when I decided I want to be a journalist and I was a kid, when I decided that I saw it as a way that um, you could bring to the masses stories about people who were suffering or something that was being done in the dark. And as a journalist, like, you know, burn the star, somebody, aha, I'm going to uncover this and, and, and let the world know that this terrible thing is happening. But, you know, a lot of what we do as journalists is that, right? You know, when you look at people who've won Pulitzer Prizes, the Pulitzer Prizes are always for like investigative journalism or, you know, of course, there's spot news, right? Things that happen and we cover it, but investigative journalism or editorial writing or things that evoke some sort of change. 
they're, they're responsible for there being reforms in a particular industry or in a particular government or they've uncovered some sort of uh, malfeasance or some criminal activity in government or something like that. So from a kid, I always knew that the pen is my, mightier than the sword, that that wasn't just, you know, an adage. It really was true. So I always tell people, like, even now as they're, as people say stuff about, you know, lawyers and journalists are the worst thing in America. And I said, listen, you know, yes, they're same where there are abuses in the police field or abuses in, you know, securities and, and financial industry. There is going to be people who abuse their position as journalists and as attorneys. But for the most part, when something happens to you, there are three ways that you can get relief. One is to go to the courts, which is the lawyers that you want to disparage. Two is to um, go to the media, which is the journalist that you want to disparage. Or three is to get a gun and go and shoot someone or do, you know, and so that's not the obvious way. The force, right, is not the way you want to solve problems, at least not in a civilized society. So that one has to be put to the side. The only other way is to either go to the media and make it known what's happened, right? Or B, go to the court. And so the media is the one that doesn't cost you money. You need money to fight these court battles. And so I always tell people, that's where your power lies, just in your voice. And so for me, going from journalism to, um, you know, being an attorney, those things were, that made perfect sense because it's like, I've been doing this work my whole life, right? But doing it in a different way. So it was just sort of like switching gears. So you know, ever since, like I said, since I was a kid, I always hated to see people mistreated or people, you know, done wrong. And so, you know, working in the legal field gives me an opportunity to advocate for people in a different way, people who can't speak for themselves or who can't get noticed or whose issue, you know, hasn't been brought out to the forefront. So that it was a, it was a natural progression. And it just sort of came to me one day and I said, you know what, I think I'm going to go to law school. It was just like, it was like someone flipped the switch and I decided to do that. But it, it turned out to be um, a fitting uh, gear shift for me just because of my previous skill set. And, you know, obviously, you know, as, a, as a lawyer, you do a lot of writing and sometimes a lot of speaking, depending on what type of lawyer you are. So it, it was a good fit. That was my conversation with Rochelle Dickerson. I've known several journalists who went on to become attorneys, but Rochelle offered the best explanation I've ever heard of why people transition from journalism to the legal profession. I also really liked how Rochelle framed the diversity challenges we face and explained why newsroom diversity remains an important goal. Rochelle's long and varied career gives her an exceptional sense of perspective, and I look forward to our next conversation. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention, and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.